This is a Federal News Network podcast. The IRS needs more than just money and personnel to shrink what agency officials say is a growing gap between what taxpayers owe and what the agency collects. That's what current and former IRS officials told members of the Senate Finance Committee this week. The agency also needs more data from banks and other financial institutions, they said, and more technology to use the data. Commissioners have been saying this for years. For more, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with former Commissioner Charles Rosati. Our plan is to increase the amount of information reporting because there's certain types of income that are not reported. If you're an employee, you get a W-2. You know, if you have interest, you get a 1099. There's some income that isn't reported. So we would just try to fill in that gap. And then with technology that's available today, you can do a better job of finding that missing income and also making it easier for taxpayers to deal with the IRS. So those are the main elements of what we propose. And we think you could collect about $1.4 trillion, for example, over 10 years, which is a huge amount, but it's still only about 19% of the tax gap. You know, to your point there, I'd love to hear more about what more could be done to shrink the tax gap with third party reporting, to your point about making sure that the IRS has the data it needs. The basic point is, you know, most of the tax revenue that comes in, you know, 97 percent, 98 percent comes in with people voluntarily paying. When I say voluntary, it means it's not like giving to your church that you have a choice. You have to pay, but people just do it because they know they have to. And when you have an information report like a W-2, the IRS has the same information that you do. So you get accurate reporting. In fact, for that type of income, the accuracy is very high, like 95 to 99%. But where there is no reporting, you know, it's anybody's guess. I mean, what might be reported, it could be as low as 50%. So by filling in that gap, it's only certain types of income that, that are really not reported. Most of it is reported. You would give the taxpayer and the IRS the same information and you would increase reporting very substantially. Just in terms of numbers, you asked, we think that out of, let's say, 160 million individual and business returns, there's only about 13 million that really don't get full reporting. So you would have to fill in that gap of 13 out of 160 million. It seems pretty clear you're finding that the tax gap is concentrated mostly among high income earners. And I would love to hear more from you of kind of what some of those challenges are. Like, what are some of the challenges the IRS has in making sure those taxes are paid from high income earners compared to the rest of the taxpaying United States? Well, you are correct in that at least 85% of it is from the top 25% of taxpayers. And that's for two reasons. One is the tax rates are higher on upper income individuals, but also the types of income, which is mostly business income, is concentrated in the upper bracket. So that is a correct observation. And that's what creates the challenge because it's quite easy for the IRS to check with its computers. If you're a wage earner and you got a W-2, did you reported 75000 or a million dollars, it doesn't matter, of salary, it's on your W-2. And that's pretty easy to check. When it comes to business income, you have two problems. As I said, you have a lack of information reporting in some cases, but even when you do have information reporting, it's more complex. And so a lot of times the IRS, or at least today, at least with the technology the IRS has, it, it only has manual audits to go by. And those are very inefficient. In fact, audits are inefficient for the IRS as well as for taxpayers. So the key to improving the situation as far as the tax gap is not only the information reporting that's missing, but also upgrading the technology that the IRS has. 
so that it can use the information it has. It doesn't do any good to report if the IRS can't use it. And there's a lot of information the IRS already has that it can't use. So those are the real things that make it for challenging. And then the last thing I would mention is the IRS resources in terms of staff and all have been cut. Little by little over 30 years, they've been cut substantially so that you really have an inability to follow up on some of the items, even when they know that there's underreporting. But you also have a problem for the taxpayers because many taxpayers will tell me, well, I get a letter from the IRS and I may have trouble understanding what that letter says, but if I try to call somebody or find out how to resolve it, you know, it could take a very long time to get through and to get that issue resolved because of lack of enough staff and also to some degree, lack of good technology to help resolve these cases. So it affects the taxpayer too. Yeah. And I actually want to kind of maybe drill down into that point a little bit more. You know, we're, of course, having this conversation in the context of the Biden administration proposing this $80 billion in additional spending at the IRS to focus on what we're talking about now as far as improving enforcement and shrinking this tax gap. To your point, it's very well documented that the IRS has had a decade of constrained budgets, fewer workforce resources. Given that the agency has been constrained in terms of resources for so long. Are there perhaps bottlenecks or or maybe hurdles along the way in the agency being able to build up its capacity in terms of hiring new enforcement personnel or doing the types of things that it would need to do to you know beef up its enforcement? Definitely, there are many challenges in doing that. And that's why in our plan, We've really thought that through very carefully in the sense that the timing of it is critical. The timing of it is such that you can't do things that quickly. You have to do them year by year, but you have to continue to do them over a period of time. So we estimated that the additional resources should be limited to about 6% per year, but steady. And so the important thing is not only the total amount of money, but how it's done and the fact that it would be continued in a consistent, assured way over a period of time, because obviously you can't rebuild staffing and you certainly can't invest in technology quickly. And the other thing that makes that very important is that you really don't want to just do things the same old way. You know, I mean, you mentioned that the IRS had 33,000 more people some years ago. Well, the last thing that you really want to do is to just add 33,000 in the same way that you did 20 years ago. I mean, that would be a very poor use of resources. So if you want to do things better, which you can because of technology and just the way that everybody's learned how to do business today, you have to do that in a planned way, in in a very careful way over a period of time. So the bottom line is we think about 6% a year over 10 years is the way to go. And that would allow the IRS to invest in current technology and use that technology to make people more effective and to make it easier for taxpayers to do business with the IRS. Yeah, I guess that gets back to your point earlier about audits being you know, inefficient, they are labor intensive, and sometimes at the end of the day, there are no taxes owed as a result of that investigation. Is there an investment that could be made at the IRS to make it in such a way that they are more precise, I guess is the word I want to use, for making sure that you know the audits that they do result in taxes being collected as a result of that investigation. Is there is there something to be said for more precise auditing at the IRS? That is exactly what the point of, of the Shrink the Tax Gap program is. And, and that's where the technology comes in. That's the key. If you have the information available and you have the technology to analyze it, you can be more precise, more targeted, if you will. 
not only in figuring out which returns to audit, but exactly why you're auditing those returns. Because one of the complaints you'll hear from a taxpayer is I got a letter from the IRS. I said I had a problem, but what was the problem? I couldn't figure it out from what they said. You can use the information and the technology to do exactly what you said, be more precise in identifying which ones to follow up on and, and why. And you're also correct about the problem of what are called false positives or, you know, unnecessary audits where, you know, you say thought that there was a problem with this return and they went through all the trouble of auditing and it turns out there was no problem. Okay. Well, you might say that's great. The taxpayer got off without having to pay anything, but really the taxpayer still did pay something because they had to go through all the process of doing an audit. So that is actually a very significant problem. That can be as high as 20% of the individual audits and as many as 40% on corporate audits. So one of the goals of program that we outlined is exactly to do what you say, which is to really do a better job of only auditing where you need to and only auditing what you need to and getting it done faster. Former IRS Commissioner Charles Rosati speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, 
quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. It's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. 
And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of of being a leader, uh, and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants, and I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the. Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.